Welcome to On Air with Clean Air Council. I'm your host, Katie Edwards. Clean Air Council is a member-supported, nonprofit environmental organization dedicated to protecting everyone's right to a healthy environment. The council is headquartered in Philadelphia and works through public education, community advocacy, and government oversight to ensure enforcement of environmental laws. Today, I'm joined by Andrew Womer, Clean Air Council Advocacy Coordinator for Southwest Pennsylvania, Hillary Flint, Director of Communications and Community Engagement for Beaver County Marcellus Awareness Community, and Vice President of Unity Council for the East Palestine Train Derailment, and Jess Kennard, Appalachia Director for Beyond Plastics. Jess, Hillary, and Andrew have been working on the ground tirelessly since the East Palestine train derailment on February 3rd, 2023. There's so much to discuss that this is going to be a two-part podcast. So listen today and then join us again in two weeks for part two. Well, first of all, thank you all so much for being here. We're going to be diving into the East Palestine train derailment. So to start with, can you all take us back to the day of February 3rd when the train initially crashed? What happened? What did you hear? What did you smell? What did you see? It was a normal Friday night for me and my family. Uh, We were all in separate rooms enjoying a quiet Friday evening. Luckily, the curtains were closed. There was a train that was on fire that passed through my backyard that night. As I was sitting at home, I started to hear a few sirens go up and down the road, which isn't completely unusual. But then after 10 minutes, 20 minutes of sirens, I started to get concerned. And I found my husband downstairs. He was watching the news and he had said that a train derailed and there was a big fire. And at that point, that's what we knew. And we listened to the news and listened to the sirens go up and down. And we were at that point told to shelter in place. And that's how it went. And then I will speak from my side of the border. I live in Enon Valley, Pennsylvania, which is one of the towns that borders East Palestine. I'm just under four miles away. Honestly, the night that the train derailed, I... I heard a lot of sirens, just like Jess said, you know, you hear it and you're like, oh, that's strange. And it keeps going and keeps going. And I couldn't find anything on the news. So I looked on Facebook and that's when I found out about the derailment. But at that time, I didn't personally see or smell anything. I just heard sirens. So I didn't really know that my town would be affected just yet. So when did the first responders show up? What did they do? And what was the information given to the public at that time? I'm not sure exactly what time the first responders showed up. My husband was on the fire department. So we actually started listening to the chatter from the people that were in charge of responding. I can't say exactly what time that was. It was maybe like 930 or 10 o'clock at night. But we really didn't know anything. There wasn't a whole lot of communication. And I know that there were people that started to be evacuated that were closest to the derailment site. I personally do not know anybody that was evacuated right away. But as I understand, the police officers were going door to door evacuating residents. But as far as any other communication, 
I did not have any idea that there were even chemicals on the train. I just knew it was a big fire. It's not unusual to have train derailments. Even in this area, we've had train derailments, but not of this magnitude. It was really surprising to me when the fire was still burning the next day, let alone a few days later. So on the Pennsylvania side of things, we didn't have anyone going door to door outside of a couple households that were right on the Ohio border. So again, you know, much like Jess, I didn't know there was chemicals on the train at that point, um, and we didn't really have any contact with any local emergency services. When did you start to know about the chemicals on the train and that this isn't just another derailment? This was one that could be really harmful to health. I would say the first that I started to realize this was not your regular run-of-the-mill derailment was Monday morning when we heard about the imminent explosion of one of the vinyl chloride cars. Little did we know it would actually be event and release of five vinyl chloride cars, almost 116,000 gallons that would be purposefully spilled into a ditch and lit on fire is how they chose to manage that situation. And that Monday, February 6th, was a game changer, I think, for the community. Was that when you were ordered to evacuate? I was never ordered to evacuate. I am just over two miles from the derailment site. And I firmly believe that the decision to have my community, even those outside of the one mile radius, the decision to have us shelter in place did expose my family, my friends, my community to thousands of chemical compounds that we still don't fully understand. And I do think that has led to our ongoing acute illnesses and potentially chronic illnesses because of that decision. Yeah. And I will say when it comes to Beaver County, again, we weren't notified that there was chemicals on the train. It was the news and social media that kind of broke that to the community. And it was scary for, I would say, over the weekend into Monday because there was a lot of false information. There were a lot of rumors. And that all stems from the fact that the train manifest wasn't released to the community. So we didn't know what we were dealing with. So people were talking about, you know, the worst. Some people mentioned the truth, vinyl chloride, uh, benzene, acrylate. So rumors were swirling and the fact that emergency services and what they're now calling unified command, the fact that they weren't communicating with the community in real time was a, a real issue. And it's continued to be an issue. On Beaver County side of things, our emergency services leader actually said he will not be forcing anyone from Beaver County to evacuate. So while in East Palestine in that one mile radius, it was a mandatory evacuation. Even the people within that one mile zone on the PA side weren't forced to leave because our emergency services leader just kind of refused to uphold that. And I, I think that that's pretty unacceptable. Luckily, there was no um, you know, shrapnel that came from that burn. But it, it just showed there's so many communication issues in, in this area, in small towns, and that has continued to be highlighted this many months later. 
Do you remember what Norfolk Southern and the EPA's initial response was? Was their response helpful in any way? And what was the response on the ground to their comments? I can comment on being in the hearing in Washington, D.C. during the Public Works Committee, where the senators were quite literally grilling Alan Shaw, the CEO of Norfolk Southern. I was there with a few other members of my community. We felt like it was really important to be there in those moments where Alan Shaw was refusing to make any commitments to the community that were of any value. It was shocking to see how quickly the trains started rolling in after the evacuation was lifted. And it was also shocking to hear that the cleanup would not have even happened had the community residents not placed pressure on Norfolk Southern to clean it up. It didn't even start until almost a month later. So we had all of those chemicals and oil seeping into the earth and into our air and into the water for a month after everything had happened. From my perspective, being in Washington, D.C., it was heartbreaking to see the CEO of this company not committing to the health and safety of the community that it just poisoned. And I'll say in the beginning, a a lot of the communication the EPA and Norfolk Southern had with the community was through um, these press conferences they would do. I'll never forget in one of them, they were sharing this hotline that, you know, oh, call this number if you have questions or if you need help. And the number they shared didn't even work. And I don't think they corrected it for probably another hour or two. So they it's like they couldn't even properly give us a way to communicate with them. And when, you know, that number was updated and it did work, people in Pennsylvania were calling and saying, you know, are we going to be affected? What's on the train? After the burn, we were saying, you know, hey, we have this smell in our home. They would ask for your address and they would put it into some sort of database. And if you were not within that one mile zone, they were done talking to you because there was no possible way in their mind that you could be affected as if, you know, a chemical gets to a one mile radius and says, oh, sorry, guys, we have to stop here. We're at the one mile. And I'll piggyback on that, Hillary. I can certainly agree that their hotline system was not very helpful. Um, I called several times in the beginning about air quality testing, water testing, and you would get put on this wait list and then they would call you back in a couple weeks. And if you missed the call, forget it. I called at one point about my pet's health and I was directed person to person to person to person. Finally, I was able to get through to someone from a veterinary clinic and they were like, I don't know why they told you to contact me. I'm not even sure what chemicals your pet was exposed to. These symptoms could be because of anything. So it was this huge gaslighting that, you know, in March, the Unified Command put out a statement talking about the ACE survey, which was the health survey that was completed very early on in my community and and surrounding. I think anybody could have participated in that that felt they were impacted. And the ACE survey results were very consistent with what an exposure to these chemicals would be. And so the EPA, the Unified Command, put out this statement on March 31st saying, 
yes, it's consistent. People with comorbid health conditions might experience more ailments, and yet we are calling these hotlines, reporting our symptoms, and being told that it's not from the chemicals. We were being told that our exposures matched up, but it wasn't from the derailment. That just sounds so frustrating. I'd like to back up just for a minute and give our listeners a better picture about what chemicals were leaked. What is vinyl chloride? What are some of these chemicals that you're mentioning and what are some of their health impacts? So vinyl chloride is primarily used to make PVC plastics. These are your number three plastics. They cannot be recycled safely. This type of plastic is really what contributes to the massive global plastic waste problem that we have. So it's really important to recognize the connection between what happened in East Palestine, Ohio, and the surrounding areas to the plastics problem that we have in this country and and globally. Vinyl chloride has been a known carcinogen for 49 years, and For 49 years, we've had an opportunity to decrease use of this product. And yet, even though 116,000 gallons was all that was spilled, there was actually 700,000 gallons of vinyl chloride on the train. And I think it is egregious that we put that much of the chemical on trains and we pass it through town after town after town after town. And nobody knows that it's coming through their community. And it's essentially a bomb train. And our train was knowingly on fire four towns before it got to East Palestine. So when you put this chemical on a train and then it's set on fire and nobody does anything for miles and miles, that's a problem waiting to happen anywhere that there's a train track. Yeah. And, you know, vinyl chloride is kind of the chemical that's been in the news the most, which, of course, is just just explained why. But the train also had butyl acrylate, isobutylene, ethylene glycol, ethyl hexyl acrylate. And, and something that's not talked about is when these chemicals caught fire, it created new chemicals. Just because it wasn't on the train doesn't mean that it wasn't a byproduct of the derailment. And, you know, one of the chemicals that comes to mind is formaldehyde. They found formaldehyde in an East Palestine resident's yard, and they actually put out a statement saying, oh, it couldn't, it's not from the derailment, the train wasn't carrying formaldehyde. And then it took, you know, residents pressuring them to put out another statement admitting the truth, which is formaldehyde can be a byproduct of these chemicals being burned together. And then, of course, with all these chemicals burning together, that also creates dioxin and furons and all of these really, really dangerous exposures. And we're getting all of them at once. In many cases, we're we're guinea pigs right now. When it comes to health studies, there aren't any studies on how all of these chemicals could affect a single human. Um, And the the answers that we need aren't out there, but we'll continue to at least fight for some kind of answer and some kind of help. I actually have the formaldehyde report here. I'm going to read a couple of sentences from it. It says, number three, is formaldehyde a contaminant of concern from the derailment? It says, last week, an East Palestine resident reported to EPA that they had a skin reaction from handling soil in their backyard after digging a swimming pool. 
EPA tested the soil and did not detect high hazard chemicals. The device used for testing did indicate that low levels of formaldehyde might have been pre- might have been present. But the results were inconclusive. Formaldehyde was not released during the train derailment. And it talks about how formaldehyde breaks down quickly. But this is a problem because this person whose home was tested was told that this is a byproduct of the burn. And yet here we are in a newsletter saying it's really not that big of a deal. You know, when you have this repeated and ongoing exposure to all of these different chemicals, and then you also have your senators, Senator uh, Vance and Senator Brown from Ohio, I know for sure, that have been urging for a public health emergency declaration so that we can get the resources that we need to test our bodies, to test our homes. Um, And it just seems like it falls on deaf ears when it comes to the EPA. So we're talking about all these exposures. Did people have symptoms that they were talking about? Were animals impacted? We know the environment was impacted, but how were all of these symptoms coming together? One thing to know is people are still experiencing symptoms. In many cases, symptoms are getting worse. In the very beginning, a lot of the symptoms were very similar from person to person. We had a lot of, you know, maybe they had a tickle in their throat, um, sinus issues, migraines, dizziness, rashes, upset stomach. Some people had what looked like chemical burns on their body. And as time went on, those things continued to get more and more serious. We started seeing a, a lot of nosebleeds. Even people that come to town just for a day or two leave and they have consistent nosebleeds. There was a member of Senator J.D. Vance's office who said just from being in the creek one time, he had continued nosebleeds for months. This is something that when media comes, it, it happens to them. It's happening to independent testers. It doesn't take very long to get symptoms. You just have to be here for a couple hours or a day. We also started to see seizures. And people that never had seizures before, there have been a lot of cognitive symptoms. So people are saying like brain fog, there's a lot of fatigue. So they're very broad and vague, but these are things that people didn't have before. And it's the people that do have pre-existing conditions that seem to get sicker quicker That's how I put it. So, you know, women that had endometriosis started seeing differences in their menstrual cycle, increased ovarian cysts. Children started having really bad rashes and nosebleeds. Um, Unfortunately, some kids were bleeding from orifices other than their nose. Uh, There have been a couple of very extreme cases. It's taken a while, but now we're starting to see more of the general population have some symptoms. Um, Diarrhea is a pretty consistent one. It's something, you know, people don't want to talk about, but it's a continued problem here. And all it takes, again, is someone visiting for a couple hours to start having symptoms. These communities have been living with these symptoms now for, what, almost eight months. We're hearing from the EPA and we're hearing from you know, other agencies that, you know, it can't be the derailment or it's probably not the derailment. But again, a lot of these people didn't have symptoms before. And um, as time has gone on, we've started to see some rare cancers. We've seen people come out of remission. When it comes to men, we're seeing heart issues. 
men in their 40s that are having what seems like a heart attack, but isn't. They can't figure out what it is. Decreased heart function. There is a young man wearing a life vest full time because his he now has, I, I think, 15 percent. Um, function and one of his his valves. And these are problems that just didn't exist here before. So people's lives have changed in eight months. And um, it's different from person to person. There's some things that are the same throughout everyone. And I, I fear that as time goes on, we're going to see more and more people have serious long-term health issues like cancer, diabetes, heart issues. When I went to East Palestine the week of February 20th to engage in relief efforts and talk to residents, I had three volunteers with me to help distribute water and, and conduct interviews and things like that. You know, we developed short-term acute symptoms while we were there to different degrees of severity. So our one volunteer walked into a dollar store to pick up some supplies and caught a whiff of what they said smelled like plastic and almost passed out and, you know, essentially left a day or two early. Our other volunteer developed skin irritation on their legs. They think because their pants got wet with, with water from the river and they think that like that consistent exposure on their, on their legs is what caused it. I know me personally, I took the lead on speaking to folks inside of their homes when we were taking notes and conducting interviews. And one home in particular where folks in the home were having some pretty serious respiratory issues. I wasn't wearing a respirator in that home. And even only being in that home for 20, 30 minutes or so to conduct the interview, I developed a cough that persisted for, you know, two to three hours um, after I left the area completely. You know, we witnessed folks with, I guess, skin lesions would be the term. They had, you know, just sort of red, irritated splotches on their arms and legs. And to Hillary's point, different people are affected in different ways. So you do see people with symptoms and then you see other people with like maybe not any severe observable symptoms or, you know, nothing that kind of like exceeds past what is normal for them. And it's it's contentious within the community because some people who aren't feeling symptoms, you know, are sort of denying that other people are. So it's 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 causing some problems socially. We understand as a community that there are people that have experienced illnesses and that there are people from the community and surrounding areas that have not. But yet when you bring these illnesses to the attention of the emergency agencies in charge, it's met with such disdain. It's like we told you that it was safe here and everything's normal. And with the EPA coming out with their dioxin testing this past week, saying that they tested 146 sites, 4% of those sites they're calling outliers. Can we please start to look at the data as a whole and not just pieces and parts? If it's not the dioxin, what is it that is making these people sick? Is it because the creeks are still highly contaminated? Is it because the air is contaminated? Is it vapor intrusion? Is it our soil? There are so many questions as residents that we have that remain unanswered. And it's so frustrating to try to get the truth and to try to get someone to believe you that these are your physical symptoms. And on top of that, 
this whole thing has taken up so much mind space that I really would like to have back. I wake up every morning wondering, is it safe to continue to live in my community? Am I putting my children, my husband, myself, my pets at risk by living in my home? These are the things that I think about every single day. Every moment of my life is flooded with this, just what do we do next? How do we mitigate the future of cancer in in our home. It's it's the stress, the mental anxiety, you know, the PTSD that's now coming out. There's so many different health symptoms and issues that people didn't have before. The increased anxiety, you know, the stress is enough to cause physical ailments and I'm here to tell you that's still all from the derailment. So even if someone says to me, "Oh, you're just stressed out." Yeah, I am stressed out because I don't know if my home is safe. On that note, Jess talks about, you know, the, I don't want to say guilt, but there is some guilt about it where you think like, am I putting myself at risk? Am I putting my family at risk? Something people keep, you know, commenting on my social media. Oh, well then just get out. But the problem is if we have the EPA and other organizations that are saying everything is okay, we actually can't get out. We're not going to get the testing that we need to prove that there's things going on in our home. We're not going to get the medical evaluations we need. You know, our homeowner's insurance isn't going to replace our items that smell like sweet bleach. It's just a constant battle to be believed, to be treated, to even be considered. And that is a huge, huge mental anguish that we're all going through every single day. There's another young woman who her and I both had kidney cancer as young adults. And when this all happened, we had said to each other, like, I I hope this isn't the thing that brings us out of remission. And we had that conversation early on. And then we found out that she came out of remission. She had messaged me and said, you know, that thing that we've been worrying about from the very start, um, it came true. And she's out of remission. And then just a couple months later, I go for my yearly scans and they find uh, lesions on my lung and they find cysts in my ovary that have to be looked at further. So you have all these fears about, oh, this could happen. This could happen. This could happen. And then these things are actually happening. And now the guilt is, oh, my goodness, I didn't get myself out of here quick enough. I, you know, I should have just ran. I should have left everything. And so not only are you battling your health issues, you're, you're battling kind of your own guilt, your own anger against yourself and the, the government, frankly, your, your anger against the EPA and your anger that the people that are supposed to help you haven't. And you just don't understand why. Thank you to Jess, Hillary, and Andrew for joining us today. Tune back in two weeks for the second part of this important conversation and learn more about the response to the train derailment. Thank you to our listeners for tuning in to On Air with Clean Air Council. Support our work by becoming a member. You can do so by donating online at cleanair.org backslash donate. You can also follow us on social media at Clean Air Council on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. <laughs>